Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This uh, theme for this week uh, as part of our 50th anniversary celebration has been a half century of innovation and intellect transforming ideas into Nobel breakthroughs. And what you will hear from our four speakers this evening is essentially how this idea arose in their minds and how in this particular environment with the colleagues and graduate students and other uh, uh, people uh, at UCSD, they were able to transform these uh, uh, germ of an idea into a breakthrough that really transformed their fields and and led to the Nobel Prize uh, for their achievements uh, in in this particular area. We are fortunate that these people have really uh, contributed to the extraordinary excellence that UCSD has uh, exhibited in the last 50 years or so. And just in this last year, despite our difficult budgetary times, we've received many accolades that show that for a university as young as we are, 50 years old, that we have accomplished the extraordinary in this uh, short period of time. This is uh, illustrated by the fact that the Washington Monthly uh, last year uh, uh, ranked us as number one in the nation with respect to not only academic achievements, but helping social mobility of students, uh, providing low-income students with the opportunity to go on and get an education. And in this sense, we were ranked number one in the nation. We also have received wonderful uh, accolades from the National Research Council in terms of our accomplishments. Two-thirds of our pro- graduate programs at UCSD are in the top 20. A number of them are in the top five or so. And really, it is the accomplishment of the faculty, like the ones that you will hear from today, as well as the students, postdocs, and undergraduates who've contributed to this environment of excellence at UCSD. So as we strive to achieve uh, or climb up higher in this ladder and achieve excellence in the quest for knowledge and dissemination of the highest uh, values in t- teaching, service, and, and research. It is, we look forward to these uh, individuals who have been the pioneers uh, in, in uh, breaking through the barriers in their own fields. So I, I'm really delighted to have the four Nobel laureates here with us. You've seen in the presentation that was, uh, that was going on uh, earlier that there were 16 Nobel laureates who participated in life at UCSD, and that was just a presentation of who they were and what their contributions were over the years at UCSD. So tonight, we pay homage to all 16 of them, but they're represented by four of the people who are actively involved with the UCSD faculty at this point in time. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce my friend and close colleague, Dick Atia, who who will be the moderator for the program this evening. Uh, Dick has served UCSD for 24 years. He's he's Professor Emeritus uh, of Economics at UCSD, and he was former Vice Chancellor for Research, as well as Dean of Graduate Studies at UCSD. In his role, he was responsible for overseeing graduate education and fostering research environment at UCSD. And just this last year, I mean, partly because of the efforts that Dick and others put into this, UCSD crossed the $1 billion threshold in terms of grants that we got into the university. This is the best in the UC system, and we beat every other UC campus with respect to stimulus funding that we got last year, crossing $160 million. So this really is is part of uh, 
politics uh, uh, efforts that he started many years ago and that's been continued by other vice chancellors for research at UCSD. So uh, Dick has also played a very important role in, in research administration, intellectual property management, contracts and grants administration, as well as federal and state research relations. So he's been with us for quite some time. He knows a lot of the people and faculty. He's worked closely with many of the uh, people you, you will hear from this evening. So, uh, Dick, would you please come up and, and introduce the speakers as we go along? Thank you. Well, thank you, Suresh. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to be here and to serve as a moderator of the, for this illustrious panel. And if these gentlemen weren't such good guys, it would be more than a little intimidating. Uh, because they have all had such interesting and productive careers, it would take forever for me to list all of their honors, awards, and, and accomplishments. So in my introductions, I'll focus on their just a little bit about their early background and provide a brief account of their career trajectory. In reading their autobiographies on the Nobel Prize website, two things uh, struck me uh, as they're having in common. All of them had loving and supportive parents who encouraged them in their childhood interests. None of them seemed to have a tiger mom. And they all had an active interest in music in their youth. Each panelist will speak for 20 minutes, and at the end we'll have about 30, 30 minutes of questions and answers. So let's begin. Our first speaker is Harry Markowitz, who won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 1990 for his pioneering work on the theory of financial economics. Harry's autobiography essay begins as follows. I was born in Chicago in 1927, the only child of Morris and Mildred Markowitz, who owned a small grocery store. We lived in a nice apartment, always had enough to eat, and I had my own room. I was never aware of the Great Depression. Lucky guy. Harry played sandlot baseball and touch football, and he played the violin in the high school, his high school orchestra. His reading graduated from comic books to popular accounts of physics and astronomy to the original works of David Hume and Charles Darwin. Harry went to college and graduate school at the University of Chicago, earning his PhD in 1954. I graduated from high school in that year. Well, <laughs> While still a graduate student, he published a, a paper in the Journal of Finance entitled Portfolio Selection, which revolution, revolutionized the field of financial economics. A few years later, he expanded that work into a book, which was published in 1959. I was an economics graduate student at that time, and I can tell you that his work generated a lot of excitement. Harry has, an un, has had an unusual career in that he has moved back and forth between industry and academia. Over the past 60 years, he's held research positions at five, five different co companies, including 12 years at the Rand Corporation, nine years at IBM's Watson Research Center, and 10 years at Daiwa Securities Trust Company. And he's had, held regular faculty appointments at four universities, including the Wharton School at Penn, Rutgers University, Brooke College at the City University of New York, 
and since 1994, UCSD, first in the economics department and since 2006 in the Rady School of Management. Given the youth of the Rady School, the value of having someone as distinguished and experienced as Harry Markowitz as a member of its relatively young faculty cannot be overstated. We are indeed honored to count Harry as one of our own. So please join me in welcoming Harry Markowitz. So I'm one of these, maybe the only one here that uh, wasn't at UCSD when they did, uh, when I made my discovery. Uh, the reason is, uh, let's see, this thing does, this is the 50th anniversary of UCSD and the 60th anniversary of portfolio theory. Well, actually, next year is the 60th anniversary of portfolio theory. So... Uh, Let's talk about portfolio theory before 1952. That's when I published. So what happened before 1952? I've been sometimes introduced uh, by somebody saying, uh, the chairman saying, uh, uh, before 1952, uh, people didn't know they were supposed to diversify. Well, that's not correct. Uh, for example, uh, Shakespeare in his Merchant of Venice says, my ventures are not in one bottom trusted, uh, nor to one place, nor is my whole estate upon the fortune of this present year. Therefore, my merchandise does not make me sad. So Shakespeare understood covariance, you know, at an intuitive level. Uh, Cap I wish I could have a Wallace Berry accent at this point. Uh, Captain Long John Silver in Treasure Island says, I puts it all away. Some here, some there, none too much anywheres by reason of suspicion. <laughs> so even a smart pirate knew that he, wasn't, he was supposed to diversify. Now, what was lacking in 1952 was an adequate theory uh, covering the effective diversification uh, when risks are correlated and the risk return trade-off on the portfolio as a whole. So uh, we'll look at some of the literature prior to 1952. Um, there was an article that was uh, listed before uh, uh, called The Early History of Portfolios Theory from 1600 to 1960. Uh, 1960 was when I, I was working at the Rand Corporation and a young man um, knocked at my door, said, my, my name is... Bill Sharp, and I also work at the Rand Corporation, and um, uh, my advisor thought you might have a suggestion uh, for a dis you know, dissertation topic. And then, uh, as 19 and then 30 years later, uh, he and I shared a Nobel Prize, and my family was at one table at, at the Grand Hotel in Sweden, and his family was at the next hotel. So that was 1960 when he moved in. So this, uh, but, so this is from, uh, if you want more details, uh, I have two examples, two, uh, four examples in that. Uh, but here I'll just tell you what Levin said, or first what William John Burr Williams said uh, prior to 1952. So this, this is the theoreticians uh, prior to 1952. So first we need some terminology. So this will be the only, there's, there's going to be four words that I have to instruct you in. So you're going to be in my class for the next five minutes. So one word is semi, uh, I'm sorry, standard deviation. So that's a, a measure of how 
spread out a probability distribution is, or if you keep drawing over and over, uh, uh, let's see how spread out is. So every probability distribution has most of of the distribution between the average minus two standard deviations and the average plus two standard deviations. And if you keep drawing over and over from the same distribution, uh, if the standard deviation is uh, large, then uh, that time series will be very volatile. So sometimes in our uh, business, that's called the volatility rather than uh, standard deviation. But the statistical terms is standard deviation. Now, variance is just the square of standard deviation, and it doesn't have any intuitive concept, uh, any intuitive meaning. Um, It is not true that most of the distribution is between the average minus two variances and the average plus two variances. That's true of standard deviation, not variance. And the reason why we use variance is that computations go easy Uh, more easily in terms of variance. We do our computations, get a variance, and at the last minute take a square root to get standard deviation. Now, correlation is a measure of to what extent two random variables, two series, go up and down together. If they go up and down together in a perfect straight line, then the correlation is plus one. Uh, If they go down and up uh, inversely in a straight line, then it's minus one. If information about one on the average doesn't tell you anything about the other, then the correlation is zero. We could say they're uncorrelated. Um, The uh, um, correlations uh, of security returns uh, may be in the neighborhood of 0.25 annual returns on stocks, maybe in the order of 0.25. Correlations among indices are usually larger. So that the correlation has is between minus one and plus one, and is a measure of to what extent things go up and down together. Now, covariance uh, again is one of these concepts like variance that has no intuitive meaning. Uh, all I can say is that the covariance between two series or two random variables is their correlation, which we've said is between minus one and plus one, times the standard deviation of the one versus the st- times the standard deviation of the other. And again, computations go very easily. Relationships are very easily expressed in terms of co- covariance, and, but they can be broken down that way. So those are these four c- concepts we have to have. Now, uh, the importance of covariance up on top, uh, uh, you know, covariance is important. Let me give you an extreme example. Suppose a security is likely to have a very high return, but has a small chance of going broke. Uh, Is a small investment in this security a reasonably safe bet? Well, not if all the rest of the portfolio consists of similar bets, all of which they're going to go broke at the same time. Maybe there's some, some underlying uh, technology or deci- uh, legal decision or something which uh, is going to make them all go bad at the same time. That, then they would have a correlation of one, and that would, they would not be a well-diversified portfolio. Uh, there's a, these titles up here. The lo- there's something in my book, uh, Mark Witt's 1959, Chapter 5, called The Law of the Average Covariance. I usually point out to my, off- my audience that uh, Mark Witt's uh, 1959 portfolio selection uh, is available on Amazon.com and ships in 24 hours. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Uh, now, for an equal weighted portfolio, the chapter three talks about the general relationship between the expected return of the portfolio and the expected return of the securities. Uh, chapter four talks about the general relationship between the variance of the portfolio and the coral, uh, the and the variances and covariances of the security. But chapter five says, well, let's try to see if we can make some sense out of this. Let's see what's happening for an equal weighted portfolio. If we you know, invest one over N in each of our securities, equal weight our portfolio, then things simplify. And uh, uh, there's something called uh, the uh, law of the average covariance. And it says for an equal weighted portfolio, as the number of securities held increases, portfolio variance always, it's not an empirical relationship, it's a mathematical relationship, uh, the uh, portfolio variance approaches the average covariance. So in the prior side, we told what the covariance was between two securities. If you take all the covariances of every security with every other security, add them all up, divide how, how, much, how many there are of them, uh, you know, so you've got, you just take the average of all the covariances, then the variance of the portfolio approaches the average covariance. It's not an empirical relationship, it's a mathematical relationship, which is true uh, for every, any uh, equal weighted portfolio. So a, uh, one example is if there are uncorrelated risks, then indeed the portfolio variance approaches zero. But let's take another example. Let's suppose uh, they're not uh, uncorrelated. Let's suppose that every pair has a correlation coefficient of little rho, uh, and every security has a variance of Vs. So, every, so we're going to think of having lots and lots of securities all with the same variance or standard deviation, every pair uh, with the same correlation. And uh, In that case, uh, the, uh, you know, going back to the definition of covariance, uh, we find that the variance of the portfolio approaches the correlation coefficient times the variance of the security, but we're really interested in standard deviation, so that approaches the square root. Remember, the standard deviation is the square root of variance. So that approaches the square root of the correlation times standard deviation of the security. So if correlation is... 0.25, for example, then the ratio of the standard deviation of the portfolio to that of the security is square root of 0.25 is 0.5. So let's think about that. What is that saying? That says if you could diversify among an unlimited amount of equally good securities, all with a 0.25 correlation, then the variant, then the standard deviation, the volatility of the portfolio would be a full 50% as great as if you put all your money in one, one stock. So that means that indeed diversification does reduce volatility, but it has very limited ability to do so. It has a, you know, a limited ability to do so in the face of um, a correlation. You want it less correlated, you better put some money in cash or bonds or something like that. Okay, uh, most of the uh, ideas that were in Markowitz 1952 <coughs> came to me while I was uh, uh, 
doing research into the, you know, I was looking into the possibility of writing a dissertation uh, in finance using the math that I had been taught, uh, math and statistics and so on. I was reading a, a book by John uh, Burr Williams, uh, Theory of Investment Value. Uh, Williams said the value of the stock is the present value of its future dividends. So I thought, you know, future dividends, future dividends are uncertain. He must mean the expected value, you know, the average or the expected value, the expected present value. Of course, if one was only interested in an expected value, you can figure out that the way you maximize the expected value, I'm sorry, if you're only interested in the expected value of a security, must be only interested in the expected value of the portfolio, and the way you maximize the expected value of a portfolio is you put all your money in the one stock that has maximum expected value. Now, I knew that, you know, you're not supposed to put all your money in one stock. Let's see where I am in, in this thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, diversification exists. It's good. I had just been reading Wiesenberger's investment companies and their portfolios. I could see that people did uh, invest in investment companies uh, because they got diversification and so on. So there was something wrong with the theory. So uh, clearly investors, uh, investment companies seek return to avoid risk. They, uh, so let's measure, uh, you know, expect... Uh, uh, return in terms of expected return and, and risk in terms of standard deviations. Uh, I had two criteria. Uh, so I was a budding young economist, so I drew a trade-off curve, a risk-return trade-off curve. Uh, it was the, world, you know, the world's first uh, uh, efficient frontier, risk-return efficient frontier right there. All of this afternoon. Uh, I was taking a course at that time by Charlie... Uh, from Charlie Koopmans uh, on uh, asset allocation. Uh, he later got a uh, Nobel Prize for this work. He distinguished between efficient and inefficient uh, combinations of resources. So I had efficient portfolios and inefficient portfolios. So I, uh, in my curve, I labeled efficient, port you know, efficient portfolios, inefficient portfolios. Uh, and uh, portfolio return... I thought of the returns on securities as, as random variables. Uh, the return on the portfolio is a weighted sum of these random variables. I didn't know what the formula, I knew what the formula of a expected value of a weighted sum was, but I didn't know what the formula for the variance of a weighted sum was. So I got a book off the library shelf at the uh, business school of the University of Chicago, uh, and I looked up the formula for the variance of a weighted sum, and wow, all those covariances, and that really was a magic moment. I, uh, obviously, the variance of the portfolio depends not only on the variances, the volatility of the individual security, but to what extent the uh, go up and down together. And somebody, you know, somebody once asked me uh, in a discussion afterward, did you know you were going to get a Nobel Prize for that? I said, no, no, but I knew I was going to get a PhD, a degree for that. Uh, anyway, so uh, later in the book, uh, Williams uh, says, uh, 
uh, he, he, dress, he dresses the, co- the question of risk and uncertainty. He says, whenever the value of a security is uncertain and has to be expressed in terms of probability, the correct value to choose is the mean value, or the average. The customary way to find the value of a risky security has always been to add a premium for risk to the pure interest rate and then use the sum as the interest rate for discounting future receipts. In the case of the bond that he's been talking about, which at 40 would yield 12% to maturity, the premium for risk is 8% when the pure interest rate is 4%. Uh, Strictly speaking, however, there is no risk in buying the bond in question if its price is right. Uh, Given adequate diversification gains uh, on such purchases will offset losses, losses and and a return at the pure interest rate will be obtained. Thus, the net risk turns out to be nil. To say that uh, that a premium of risk is needed really is an elliptical way of saying that payment for the full face value of interest and principal is not to be expected on average. Now, so so, uh, he was, uh, in effect, using the law of large numbers, which he was assuming uncorrelated risks. He was assuming that risk would go away if you diversified enough. Now, how somebody can live through the great crash of 29 to, you know, to 33 and in 38 uh, assume uncorrelated risk, it is hard at this stage of the game to, to figure that out. Um, the uh, Levins, uh, uh, he uh, said an examination of some 50 books and articles on investment that have appeared during the last quarter of a century show that most of them refer to the desirability of diversification. Majority, however, discuss it in general terms and do not clearly indicate why it's desirable. And then he illustrates uh, uh, you know, diversification. But again, he's using the law of large numbers. And then he says... Uh, uh, the assumption, quote, the assumption mentioned earlier that each security is acted upon uh, by independent causes is important, although it cannot always be met in practice. <laughs> Diversif- uh, diversification among companies is, in one industry uh, uh, cannot protect against unfavorable factors that may affect the whole industry. Additional diversification among industries is needed for that purpose, uh, nor can diversification among industries protect against cyclical factors uh, that may depress all industries at the same time. So uh, at an intuitive level, he understood about correlation, but it wasn't in his model. 1952, uh, Markowitz, uh, uh, I, I, I did portfolio selection uh, in the same year, uh, maybe within a month, uh, A.D. Roy also did what is, uh, you know, he understood covariance also. Uh, so he calls it safety first uh, and the holding of assets. Uh, my, uh, I explain the same kinds of things that I've talked about already. I'm running a lot of time, so uh, um, that was in my 1952 article, was just essentially what I, I told you. Uh, Roy uh, proposed, again, choice based on the uh, mean and variance of the portfolio as a whole. But uh, rather than giving the uh, investor a whole risk-return trade-off curve, uh, he, he, wanted to, he said he should pick a particular uh, portfolio, the safety-first portfolio, one whose... Uh, who's, uh, mean return minus some disaster level was 
as many standard, de- you know, who maximizes mean minus disaster level divided by standard deviation. So he wanted to get as many standard deviations away from a disaster level as possible. So uh, why did I get a Nobel Prize and he didn't? Well, that's the break. You win a few, you lose a few. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it wasn't really because of... Uh, uh, some details of what he said versus I, what I said. I think the big difference was uh, he, he did this one big contribution and never was heard again in our field, whereas I kept, you know, writing and so on and so forth. Uh, portfolio theory now is very widely used. Uh, some uh, uh, quantitative managers use it at the individual uh, security level. They have to apply expected returns and covariances, and some use the factor models. And uh, uh, Robert Engel will tell you about how to get correlations and things like how they estimate fancy ways of getting correlations. Uh, more uh, commonly, uh, people use a top-down kind of analysis. They do this. Uh, uh, they select asset classes like large cap, small cap, and so on, review history, make esti- forward-looking estimates, get frontiers, uh, pick out uh, a portfolio on behalf, you know, maybe it's, uh, usually this is done with the help of financial advisors. It's also done, uh, there's tri- literally trillions of dollars uh, invested this way, uh, both by investing institutions and by uh, uh, financial advisors on behalf of individuals. And um, so I must hurry on. That's just uh, one last little topic. What about 2008? I said, you know, did did portfolio theory stop working in 2008? Uh, Well, well, depending on whether you're high on the frontier or low on the frontier, it's true that all, you know, almost all asset classes lost money, but uh, uh, big cap stocks lost, you know, 37, 38%. Emerging market, which has a higher beta, have more volatile, they lost over 50%. Uh, corporate bonds lost maybe 5%. Government bonds went up. So if you're high on the frontier, uh, you got smashed. But on the average, over the long run, you'll do quite well. If you're lower on the frontier, you, you know, you got dented maybe. So, uh, Portfolio theory does not promise high returns with low risk. I never said, uh, you know, I speak of a risk-return trade-off. I never said, I spoke of risk control. I I spoke of risk, uh, it emphasized that one of the jobs of the financial advisor is not only get you an efficient combination of securities, but get you to the right point on the frontier. So, uh, happy birthday, UCSD, uh, your 60th birthday, and happy birthday, portfolio. Th- I'm sorry, happy birthday, 50th birthday of UCSD, and happy birthday, uh, portfolio theory, 60th an- uh, anniversary. Thank you so much. So much. Thank you, Harry. Our second speaker will be Mario Molina, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1995 for his work in atmospheric chemistry, particularly concerning the formulation and decomposition of ozone. Mario grew up and attended elementary and high school in Mexico City. He got hooked on science while in elementary school when he first looked at paramecia and amoebae through a toy microscope. This led him to convert a home bathroom into a laboratory where he spent hours playing with chemistry sets. By the time he was 11 years old, he had decided to forego pursuing a career as a violinist 
in favor of becoming a research chemist. That's foresight. After high school, Mario earned his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering at UNAM, the Autonomous National University of Mexico. He then studied at the University of Freiburg in Mexico, in Germany, rather, for two years before returning to UNAM, where he started its graduate program in chemical engineering. Realizing that he needed to pursue his education further, Mario enrolled in Berkeley's physical chemistry program, where he earned his Ph.D. in 1972. He then went on to UC Irvine as a postdoc to work with Sherry Rowland, with whom he would share the Nobel Prize in 1995. Their work shed important light on the impact on the ozone layer resulting from the release of chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere. Mario was appointed to the faculty at Irvine in 1975, but in 1982, he moved to the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech so that he could spend more time conducting experiments with his own hands. While at JPL, his work contributed substantially to our understanding of the loss of the ozone over the South Pole. In 1989, Mario moved to MIT, where he continued to work on atmospheric chemistry. Fortunately for us, in 2004, Mario came to UCSD to join our Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and he continues to work on air quality and climate change issues. At the time he moved to UCSD, he also established the Mario Molina Center for Strategic Studies in Energy and Environment in Mexico City, which has a primary focus on addressing the problem of air pollution and improving air quality. So please join me in welcoming Mario Molina. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here and to have the opportunity to talk to you for, I'm supposed to be 20 minutes. I'm going to try to stick to that. And uh, for a moment, I thought I was going to have a very challenging time talking about science with the economics uh, uh, PowerPoint, but fortunately, I think I recovered that. Uh, well, I'm going to. To, just to try to tell you about the uh, research that led to the Nobel Prize. But I'm going to start going back in time a bit further. I wasn't born at the time that the, this slide represents. It was born a little later. So this is about 100 years ago. What happened then? Well, uh, something uh, very interesting happened with... with uh, refrigerators just about 100 years ago, namely that these electrical machines were developed. Before that, people used to have freezers or refrigerators at home, but they worked with big chunks of ice. I know in Boston and in New York and so on, there were some big business importing frozen chunks of ice from frozen lakes. And I wonder what was the situation here in San Diego. I don't, but it must have been hard to, to have these machines. But anyhow, this was very nice uh, that uh, electrical appliances came to be. Uh, however, these uh, early refrigerators did have a problem. 
and it was uh, the following. Occasionally they failed and they leaked. And so there were a few bad accidents, in fact, uh, some people actually died, because the refrigerant that uh, was uh, uh, made this uh, refrigerators work uh, was something like sulfur dioxide or ammonia. These are poisonous gases. Okay? So something had to be done. And fortunately, uh, chemists helped to solve this problem, and they developed what uh, for many years was uh, understood to be miracle chemicals. Okay? They, uh, they have this long name, chlorofluorocarbons, but CFCs for short. These are industrial chemicals. They do not exist uh, naturally. But essentially what they do is replace these uh, poisonous uh, refrigerants. Uh, these are uh, compounds. The main property that makes them useful for refrigerants is that they, you can convert them readily from liquids to gases at the, at the appropriate temperatures. That's the first property. And the second property is that they are very inert. You can breathe them and uh, usually don't get poisoned. Because of that, these miracle chemicals, of course, were a big success, not only with uh, refrigeration, but they also began to be used as propellants for spray cans. And spray cans became very popular, in, in, again, in the first half of the century. So at some point in time, I remember statistics that uh, a typical household in the United States had something like 30 or 40 different cans, spraying everything from toothpaste to underarm the other and to what have you. But the point is that you're, you're going to breathe the propellant, which is, the idea is to have a compound that under a little bit of pressure is a liquid, so you can have a lot of it in the can, and when you press the, the valve, the liquid evaporates and carries with it the deodorant or whatever you need. So that's where our story really begins. Uh, there's one more uh, point here that uh, to mention is that these compounds being so stable, they were, because of their use, they were just being released to the atmosphere. So it became possible to measure these compounds. And so this is the, um, a graph here of a, a set of measurements by a good colleague of, of ours who developed a machine that was able to measure very small amounts of these compounds. And he found them, as expected, not only in the northern hemisphere, but also in the southern hemisphere. Very small amounts. So it's at this stage that, uh, together with my colleague Sherry Rowland, when I finished my PhD at Berkeley in very fundamental chemistry, I decided to, with Sherry to do something applied. To use. He was also not a, an atmospheric chemist or environmental chemist, but we both decided to see whether we could uh, sort of apply our knowledge to some, something closer to uh, a societal problem. And we decided we would learn about the atmosphere by choosing a problem. If we could solve a problem connected to, to chemistry and to the atmosphere, that would be a good way to learn about it. And the problem that we chose was fairly simple. What happens to these compounds that were piling up? Is there anything to worry about, or will they pile up indefinitely? Uh, 
At that time, we didn't know that actually several other research groups uh, had asked the same question, and they concluded essentially that nothing would happen. We came to a different conclusion. And to explain what the conclusion is, just to explain very briefly some of the, the most important property that describes the different layers of the atmosphere is temperature. It's graphed here, but I can merely explain it. As you know, temperature drops as you go to higher altitudes, which certainly you know as you go to mountains and so on. It, it gets cooler and cooler because of the fundamental physics that the air parcel, as, as it rises, it expands and cools and so on. But this cooling doesn't continue indefinitely. In the, the, at some stage, the, the atmosphere begins to warm up, so temperature starts to increase. And that's what defines the second layer. The bottom layer is called the troposphere, the next layer is called the stratosphere, and that's a layer where temperature no longer decreases. It increases, and because of these profiles, they're uh, sort of separated. They're not, they don't mix with each other very, very rapidly. Well, that, that's all we need to know to uh, address this, this problem. What we found what appeared to be a little boring at the beginning is that these compounds, the CFCs, piling up in the lower atmosphere were indeed so stable that uh, nothing would happen to them at these low altitudes. Normally, uh, species emitted by uh, pollutants or natural or so, most of them are removed, for example, by rain if they are water-soluble, or they get oxidized, they suffer some chemical reactions and they get removed in the lower atmosphere. But these species, because they were designed to be very stable, they actually survive, penetrate into the second layer, the stratosphere. Now, what happens is the reason that temperature increases at those altitudes is because there is a certain compound at those altitudes that absorbs energy from the sun. And this compound is ozone. It's uh, not very abundant, it exists uh, even where it's most abundant, only at parts per million level. But actually life evolved in the presence of this ozone layer that exists in the stratosphere, uh, because otherwise radiation from the sun would have destroyed molecules for life, like DNA and so on. So we have a pro natural protection that uh, allowed uh, life to evolve and so on, which is the reason why you have this inverted temperature profile up there. Well, what happens then, with, with all this background, I can summarize then what our finding was uh, in, in relatively simple terms. Again, to repeat it, these compounds release at the surface, they mix rapidly uh, in the lower atmosphere. It takes them much longer to reach the stratosphere at least a decade or two, but eventually, in the stratosphere, they move to the middle or above the ozone layer. And then they find this radiation from the sun that fortunately doesn't reach the surface, the one I was alluding to that destroys biological molecule. Well, that radiation also destroys the CFCs. So that's what happens to them. That's where they end up being destroyed at these high altitudes. So that, that answered the question that we posed, but in, we didn't quite stop there. We say, well, so what? Is there any consequence of these uh, chemicals 
getting to that altitude. And what we realized, being chemists and so on, is that ozone being a very unstable molecule, that the decomposition products from the CFCs would actually destroy ozone very efficiently. And that's what I have just summarized here. Through a mechanism called catalytic cycles, that means that very small amounts of these decomposition products can destroy large amounts of ozone. Uh, this is as much chemistry as I'm going to talk about, but this is just to put an example. We, the, the point is to explain how a catalyst works. In this case, chlorine atoms are the, the species that we worry about, decomposition products from the CFCs. They are free radicals. That means they are very reactive. You know about free radicals in your body that can do some harm and so on. These are uh, molecules that uh, just are chemically very reactive because they have an odd number of electrons. Well, they, they react extremely fast with ozone, but in such a way that uh, chlorine atom destroys an ozone molecule, makes uh, chlorine oxide, and then the chlorine oxide reacts in such a way that you re regenerate the chlorine atom. So you, you can go around and around, and that's why a single chlorine atom can destroy tens of thousands of ozone molecules. And that's when we realized, wow, we have this relatively small amount of chemicals released to the environment because the atmosphere is big. And so it's not that big. It's really like the skin of an apple if you look at it from a global perspective. So from a, from a planetary perspective, the atmosphere is very thin. But from the perspective of human activities, you're up uh, 10, 15 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Not that, that far, okay? Just think 10 or 15 kilometers horizontally, you don't go very far, but if you go uh, upwards, it's above where airplanes fly and so on. Anyhow, it's at those altitudes that with this amplification mechanism, uh, we realize that we had a potential problem. It was just a hypothesis. It was in the 1970s when we postulated it. Uh, but that remained to be tested. But if the hypothesis were to be correct, then, then we would be in trouble because the ozone layer is so important for, to protect the life on the surface. Specifically, for example, on, on, on uh, on people, it's the main cause of uh, skin cancer, okay? because this, this is what you get sunburns because of this uh, radiation that is not perfectly shielded by the ozone layer. So if you affect it, you get more of that radiation. Okay, so that was the hypothesis. And then what I'm going to do is just to to uh, jump ahead. This was in, in the 70s, but it took about a decade for almost two decades, working with the scientific community to really test the hypothesis. And the, when we first postulated it, we were talking about affecting the ozone layer, more or less at all latitudes, not very specifically. But what, we, what eventually happened is we know that a very spectacular event started to happen over the Antarctic continent, namely what we now label as, as the ozone hole. Uh, and it started to develop in the 1980s. Okay. And uh, so ozone drops uh, very fast in the spring months, which is uh, in the southern hemisphere, September, October, and so on. And to, to explain 
perhaps in, in clear terms what happens in this figure. By the way, I'm using sort of historical copies of view graphs that I used to use many, many years ago, so that's why they are sort of hand-painted. But what we have here are, is a typical ozone profile, that's a blue line, which represents that there's a maximum amount of ozone in the ozone layer in the stratosphere, about 15 kilometers sort of in the, uh, over the South Pole. And in the spring term, in, sorry, in the spring months, when the light begins to show up, over Antarctica after the long winter where it's dark for several months, uh, you have this very spectacular phenomenon where ozone begins to disappear very fast. So at the altitudes where it's normally most abundant, it practically all disappears, more than 99% goes away. So when it, when it was first found and the scientific community thought, well, maybe this is, it's such a big event, it must be natural and so on. But of course, we, we were able to show that with laboratory studies and so on, that in the presence of ice clouds that exist at those altitudes, that, that really this was a consequence of the presence of these free radicals coming from the CFCs. And so there, uh, as an example of how the science got really pinned down, there were actually some measurements carried out over Antarctica. This is a ER2, which is the same plane as the, the U2, the spy plane. Some of you might remember that one of them got uh, shot down over Russia and so on. So that it was really developed to, to spy when the when we had the Cold War, but fortunately, later on, it could be converted to, to do more scientific research, spying as to what was the chemistry of the stratosphere. And so some uh, uh, experiments were designed to find out what the ozone hole was all about. And so this is, again, a little bit of a historical uh, graph, uh, measurements by my uh, colleague Jim Anderson from Harvard, which show in the upper graph what was happening to ozone as, as the aircraft penetrated into this polar vortex, which is where this event happens. And early, when the light was just beginning to appear, ozone was very stable, not much was happening, but it was already possible to measure that practically all the CFCs that were there originally had been converted to this free radical form in the presence of these ice clouds. And in just a matter of, uh, of uh, weeks or so, uh, it was quite spectacular to see this uh, anti-correlation. As you penetrated the ozone hole, it's clear that to the extent that ozone was going away, you had the, uh, this amount of the free radicals. And again, it was not hard to show that with this mechanism, you could explain how most of it was actually going away. So in some sense, this was like a smoking gun. There's a big ozone hole over Antarctica, and it's, uh, the science showed very clearly that it was a consequence of the presence of these EFCs. Of course, at other, I won't dwell on this, but other latitudes, ozone was disappearing as well. It was just not so clear, not so spectacular a phenomenon. I need to finish now, but let me just show a couple of more slides. What this led to, this was the basic science, this led to an international agreement working together with the international community. Fortunately, the, uh, essentially all the countries of the planet, more than 190 or so, agreed 
that these uh, compounds just could not longer be manufactured. So there was a ban on the production of these compounds precisely to protect the ozone layer because of the consequence we talked about. This, uh, the first part was in, in the 1980s, and so measurements that were showing up that these uh, species were piling up when industry realized that the science was so strong, then they started to reduce uh, the emissions, and so the measurements showed that very clearly. But in, in a, here is an, another way to look at it. With no controls, the emissions were going up very rapidly. The first version of this international agreement, the Montreal Protocol, was relatively weak, but it, it got successively strengthened so that with the Copenhagen Accord, the agreement was that in 1996, these compounds would no longer be manufactured except small amounts in developing countries. And so to, here is what, the, what we have now. The, uh, the observed amounts of ozone, of course, as an average, have indeed decreased. And it's, it will take some time for the ozone layer to recover because these compounds remain in the atmosphere for about a century or so. So we expect the ozone hole to recover only if, uh, sort of mid-century now, because that's how long these compounds stay there. However, if, if we had not been successful with this international agreement, then we would have expected the ozone layer to really uh, be depleted, and we would have very big trouble, not just in terms of ultraviolet radiation, but really changing how the atmosphere functions. So let me... Just very briefly, just mention that there are some important lessons, I, but I'm a little bit after time, so I won't dwell on this. The, the, the important point here is that we have other environmental global problems like climate change and several others, but we have at least this one example of something that actually worked where the countries of the planet actually did agree to do something about it, and where the problem has been essentially solved. Early on, spray cans, of course, were, that was part of the solution. They continue to be used, but they used other propellants like hydrocarbons, no longer CFCs, and for other uses, such as to clean electronic boards. At some point in time, people thought this would be practically impossible without CFCs, but of course, with the technology was developed to replace it. So let me just end with this to show another perspective of the atmosphere. It's indeed very thin, very fragile. Uh, we know that uh, with the six and a half billion people that we have on the planet, we are doing all sorts of things to the natural resources of the planet, but the atmosphere is one of those resources. Uh, but I hope we can learn from this successful example that people can actually agree and solve problems. And it turns out that even though initially there were some worries about the, whether it would cost a lot to solve the problem, the, the cost was really minimal. Society barely noticed and the, the problem was solved and uh, uh, standards of living continue to rise everywhere. And developing countries, of course, have now refrigerants, spray cans, and so on, but they were able to avoid uh, these species. So anyhow, this is, in a nutshell, the research that led to the Nobel Prize. Thank you for your Our next speaker is uh, Rob Engel, who won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 2003 
for methods of analyzing economic time series with time-varying volatility. From an early age, Rob seemed destined to have a career in science. His father was a chemist, and when Rob got interested in building and shooting off rockets, his father encouraged him to vary the rocket's ingredients and to keep a record of what difference that made. While a senior in high school, Rob's project on X-ray transmission won first place in the Philadelphia Science Fair. Rob also had a strong interest in music and played the tuba and string bass while in junior high and high school. And this interest continued into college and graduate school where he played in those schools' orchestras. Rob went on to major in physics as an undergraduate and entered the physics PhD program at Cornell. But Rob made a mistake of taking an economics elective course in his senior year in college, which changed his career path. After one year of physics at Cornell, he switched switched to the economics PhD program, and as they say, the rest is history. Rob earned his PhD from Cornell in 1969 and accepted his first academic appointment at MIT, which arguably had the top economics department at that time. In 1974, while I was serving as department chair here at UCSD, Clive Granger told me that there was this bright young econometrician at MIT whom we should try to hire. When I learned that Rob had earned his bachelor's degree from my alma mater, Williams College, and was in fact a fraternity brother of mine, I figured this guy must be good. (laughs) So we went all out to recruit Rob, and we were successful in attracting him to UCSD. Rob and Clive became lifelong collaborators, and they shared the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 2003. Aside from his many academic accomplishments, and honors, two things impress me about Rob. One is that he has so many interests outside of his professional life. To give just one example, he has had a successful amateur career in ice dancing. The other thing I love about Rob is that he has always been a great colleague. So much of his work has involved collaboration with others, which is why he has so many co-authors. Even I am one. And because he is such a great colleague, we are delighted that even after moving to NYU, Rob continues to spend every summer at UCSD. So please join me in welcoming Rob Engel. Well, thank you, Dick. It's a great pleasure to be back at UCSD. I've spent an awful lot of years here. Every time I'm back, it's different. I could hardly find the Price Center tonight. I was wandering around the, uh, the new student uh, center, and I thought, you know, I can walk here from the economics department, but I don't know how to drive here. <laughs> anyway, um, tonight I'd like to talk to you a little bit about volatility. Harry, uh, Harry was a great warm-up for this because... He told you how important volatility is in understanding the way financial markets really allocate uh, resources. And so I'd like to just start from the, the place where he, he uh, took you and, and go another couple steps further. So I want to talk about risk. 
and we all sort of have an idea about risk, but basically one of the things that we can see immediately is if we really didn't want to take any risks, we would be hard-pressed to figure out how to live our lives. So naturally, we take some risks and others we don't take. And the calculation that we go through is a little bit complicated because we have to decide which risks are worth taking and which risks are not worth taking. And this turns out to be the central paradigm of finance. Which risks are worth taking and which ones are not? If there's no risk, financial markets don't really work. And so the risk is a key part of the way financial markets go. So how do we measure risk and how do we see this risk-return trade-off? Well, this is a question that's been around a long time, and the Nobel Prize Committee has given many awards for uh, contributions on the risk-return trade-off. And Harry's paper in 1952 really set the stage for many uh, future uh, contributions, including uh, Tobin and Sharp, who also identified the risk of a portfolio with its variance, or volatility. As we now know, volatility is the square root of the variance of, of the returns on this portfolio. And more recently... The Nobel Prize Committee also gave Nobels to uh, Myron Scholes and Bob Merton for their development of the uh, theory of option pricing. And it turns out, when you think about an option, if you think about it as a way of avoiding risk by buying insurance on your portfolio, it's not surprising that the risk is related to the volatility of the portfolio. So the option pricing formula that is called the Black-Scholes formula is based on volatility as well. But I want to take the story a step further because when practitioners set about to measure volatilities and correlations, they recognized very quickly that these were not constant over time, that they seemed to change and that it made a difference when you measured them, how you measured them, over what time period you measured them. And realistically, if you're going to try to form a portfolio that you form today that's going to have some performance in the future, you need also to be able to forecast things like volatilities and correlations. So that was a, another level of complexity that immediately uh, arose. And so the solution that the ARCH model uh, proposes is that instead of doing something simple like using a shorter amount of data set, we can use a data set where we emphasize the most recent information and discount the past information. That's likely to be a better estimate of what the next period's volatility is going to be than a simple uh, average. Now, that doesn't actually sound like much of an innovation, and in fact, it probably really isn't. Uh, what it turns out 
is useful is that you can figure out how much to discount the past by looking at the performance of these kinds of models econometrically. And so the idea that you can model something like volatility, which we don't actually directly observe as a statistical problem, opened the door to all sorts of different uh, applications. And many of the applications are uh, widely used today. So what actually is this model that we're uh, talking about? It's called the ARCH model. And ARCH is a lot easier thing to say than what ARCH stands for, because ARCH stands for autoregressive conditional heteroscedasticity. And that turns out to be quite a challenge, even for my PhD students. Uh, So we typically call it the ARCH model. Um, It has really two, it focuses on two features of typical financial data. The first is what we call volatility clustering, and the second is mean reversion. So volatility clustering means that when you have a period of high volatility, it tends to stay high for a little while. And when you have a period of low volatility, it tends to be low for a little while. Mean reversion says high volatility tends to come down, low volatility tends to come up. Sounds like rocket science, right? Well, uh, it turns out with these simple features, all you need to have is a couple of parameters to describe how long the volatility clusters last and how long, how fast they mean revert to give you a way of measuring volatility and forecasting what it's going to do in the future. And as you build these kinds of models, we've... We started with the ARCH model. I started with the ARCH model. But now the state of the art uses something called a generalized ARCH model or a threshold generalized ARCH model. And this list would go on for about 20 or 30 different kinds of variations on the ARCH model, which are designed to pick up particular features of the financial world. So because I'm the next to youngest Nobel Prize winner. I'm going to show you sort of what it looked like. So this is what happens in Stockholm. And you see here in the front row are Clive and I on the end of the row, because economics is always at the end of the row. Uh, Clive, we are so sad, is not with us anymore. He passed away a year and a half ago. And Uh, This moment is a moment that we both uh, look back on, I'm sure, with a great deal of of, uh, poignance because we're sitting there wondering what is this going to really mean for the rest of our careers, for our lives? What did we do to get to this point? How is it all going to... uh, uh, affect us. Um, But actually, I don't think the audience was paying so much attention to us. I think the audience was actually watching the royal family who was on the other side of the stage. And certainly my son 
was quite entranced with the crown princess, whom he thought seemed like she had a very nice personality and <laughs> and and would be a a, a great uh, a great person to get to know. Uh, unfortunately, she already had a boyfriend. But in any case, the king then presents the award, and my wife congratulated me in front of Alfred Nobel, who is sort of looking on with a vaguely disapproving look. (laughs) And this is what the Nobel Prize really looks like. So how do we use this arch model? Um, We'd all like to know what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. And we also know that it's nearly impossible to predict what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. So what is it that the ARCH model can actually do? The idea is that even though we can't predict what the stock market is going to do, we can't predict the mean of it, we can actually predict some interval that the stock market will lie within, a sort of a confidence interval. That is, we can tell that the stock market is unlikely to go up more than a certain amount or down more than a certain amount tomorrow based on uh, observable data using a model like the ARCH model. And this is actually the basic idea behind many risk models. Risk models use something called value at risk, and this tells you sort of how much are you possibly going to lose in the stock market tomorrow if you're invested in this asset. So here's some pictures that we can look at. So this is an example of forming this interval. So the blue curve is the stock market return measured by the S&P 500 every day from 1990 till uh, August of 2007. And the green and the red curves are the predictions from a Gartz model of what the upper and lower limit really ought to look like. In fact, it's three standard deviations above and three standard deviations below what the return is. So every day, you can come up with a sort of a forecast of what this interval really looks like. And you see the low volatility period of the middle 90s is much smaller than during the internet bubble at this period. And then we have a period of low volatility again in 2003 through 2007. The bottom curve is basically a measure of how much risk is being taken in this market. How much are you likely to lose tomorrow in the stock market is measured by this red curve. And so you can see we can calculate every day how risky it is to be in the stock market. How much could you reasonably lose in if the, uh, using this uh, measure of standard deviation. But of course, you might wonder, what, why did I stop in August of 07, and what would this have done during the financial crisis to help us out? So if we look at the next slide, we'll see the same picture from August of 07 till, um, where is it, I guess... Uh, the middle of 
no, I guess the last September, something like that. And you can see the red and the green curves. Now go down to minus 10 or minus, almost minus 15% for the three standard deviations. So that it's gotten much wider. But in fact, the blue curve still lies within this confidence interval almost everywhere in here. And so from the point of view of this kind of risk measure, we were not surprised during the financial crisis. That's a little bit of a surprise uh, because there's got to be something that we didn't really account for. So hold that thought for a moment and come back to it. So what I want to show you is a couple of pictures from a website that we do now at New York University. It's called VLAB, which is a volatility laboratory. Maybe that's because I was once a scientist that, that we call it a laboratory. But in any case, the idea is that if you take these models and you really believe in them, then it's interesting to see what they do day after day after day, to follow them in real time. So VLAB takes estimate computes estimates of the volatilities and forecasts of volatilities for several hundred assets every day. Also does correlations and some other kinds of systemic risk measures that could be of interest. So what do we see when we look at the VLAB? And actually, we could do it right here, but I'm not going to do that. So we see, first of all, in the bottom, the same blue returns that we were looking at before. This is a, a two years of data. We see in green what's happened to the S&P 500 over the last two years, which is mostly went up, and then it went down, and then went up again. And the curve in red is the volatility calculated by using the uh, Garch model. It's a prediction one day ahead of what the volatility would be. So this is like the bottom curve in the chart that I showed you. And you can see that the risk was much higher during the tail end of the financial crisis. It came down. We have this big episode of rising volatilities, which was last May, which was associated with... Uh, the Greek sovereign debt crisis in Europe and the question of whether the Eurozone was actually going to collapse or not. And then it came back down again. And at the moment, volatility is just about as low as it was during the middle 2000s or the middle 90s. Rather surprising. We also show, for comparison, the volatility index, or VIX, which is an option market-based estimate of the same thing of volatility. And you see that's on average just a little bit higher, but it's especially higher in this period where the options market seems to think that the risks going forward are higher than the underlying asset appears to think. Just two other pictures here. Here are some U.S. sectors. Financial sector is here in red. You see how its volatility went up much faster than these other three sectors on the same plot. But it's come back down, and they're sort of the same. The uh, black is consumer uh, staples, and that never got to be nearly as volatile as the financial sector. And right at the very end, you see the blue curve is now jumping up a bit. What is the blue curve? Well, that's energy. And when we see the Middle East crisis and people talking about what's happening to the price of oil, that's what's moving the stock prices of 
energy assets, and their volatility is going up just right at the end here. And so we can see this because this is, well, this is from, two, from yesterday. So we can get kind of a real-time picture of, of what's happening. Uh, finally, we have, I, showed, I have a picture of some commodities. And so if we want to take that idea, here's the, the ETF, the spider of uh, oil and gas exploration. In, in red, see that was highly volatile at the back end of the financial crisis and has come back down. And now we see it rising just over the last maybe week or two. But interestingly, there's this green sector which has had higher volatility for the last two months. And what is that? That's agricultural commodities. And that, again, is something we've been reading about in the newspaper. The rising price of foods and actually uh, cotton and several other agricultural products shows up in these volatility graphs. So it's an easy thing to look at. And some of you may be uh, invested in gold because that's, uh, in some respects, uh, an asset that, that... promises stability, but you can see that the gold here also has volatility, and it has volatility that changes over time. Here's the volatility of the gold. It was never as volatile as these uh, sector stocks, but over time, its volatility goes up and down, and here it went up quite a bit during this uh, uh, last, last fall, but now it is actually a little bit lower than the other. So we can track a lot of different interesting things. So with all this technology, were we prepared? Um, Well, we can go back and ask this question in VLAB because we do this every day so we can see how did it do through the financial crisis. And what it turns out is that the financial crisis did not make the models break down. They performed just about the same way in the financial crisis as they do on average in other time periods. But that's forecasting one day ahead. And the problem is that risk management typically uses measures of risk that are forecasting the risk one day ahead. And yet that doesn't give us much warning for when there's a financial crisis coming. It especially doesn't give us much warning for using for this to choose how much to buy of illiquid assets. And when we looked to see how it was doing a forecasting one month ahead, the model showed some deterioration during the financial crisis. So we can expect that longer horizon forecasts uh, did deteriorate during the financial crisis, didn't give us as much warning as we would have liked to have had. And I think it's a topic for research that we need to develop improved long-run volatility forecasts and long-run risk forecasts. So what is the difference between a short-run forecast and a long-run forecast? Well, if you're investing in an asset that you can't sell very easily, and we might think about subprime tranches of housing, all these sorts of illiquid assets that became very famous during the financial crisis, we should use measures of risk that are more long run. And the uh, 
the value at risk that we typically calculate is too short run. What's the difference? In the long run, there is a risk that the risk will change. And that's just what happened. The volatility went up during the financial crisis. Correlations went up. And the portfolio that you thought was nicely uh, diversified at one point was no longer so diversified. And you were taking much more risk than you thought. So at Stern, we have... My colleagues and I wrote a book on the financial crisis where we talked a lot about these different aspects. In fact, we had so much fun doing that, we've written another one. The second one is a book about the Dodd-Frank bill, which we published last fall, even though the bill only came out last summer. And it's our sort of economic analysis of the different components of the Dodd-Frank bill. And as the rules are being written to implement Dodd-Frank, it's, it's fascinating to see where, which points are being uh, emphasized and which ones are not. So what is the view coming out of this? Um, <laughs> well, is this what we're going to see, or is this what we're going to see? <laughs> Dancing with Barack. Okay. Well, let me, let me just say a few more things about, about good ideas, because that's the theme of this evening, and it's the theme of this anniversary celebration. Um, and I think I better rush, because I'm taking a lot of time. But I think it's very interesting to think about good ideas, not just Nobel good ideas, but our own good ideas. Every, we have good ideas all the time, and I think if we pay attention to them, it's, it's a real pleasure in organizing our lives. So I want to say just a few words about what I think are the properties of good ideas and what do they look like. So in, in my case, uh, the ARCH model was something that was in the background when I was on sabbatical at the London School of Economics. I was working on another problem, and my wonderful PhD student, Mark Watson, said, sent me a letter. You know, we didn't... It was letters those days. Uh, He wanted to work on that topic. So reluctantly, I agreed, and I started thinking about the ARCH model. Well... Thank you, Mark. That was great. He's gone on to have a, a great career and is a very uh, uh, famous economist, but not in the arch model. So what was I thinking about? Milton Friedman proposed the hypothesis in his Nobel lecture that business cycles were a result not of the price level but about the uncertainty of the price level. If you don't know what you're going to be able to sell your goods for or what you're going to have to pay for labor, then you're likely not to invest so much. So this is kind of why businessmen might not invest when there's a lot of uncertainty about the future, and that would be a cause for a business cycle. So I thought that would be a very interesting thing to investigate, but I didn't know how to measure uncertainty that changed over time. Well, you can see 
That's exactly what we talked about in financial markets, uncertainty that changes over time, but it happens in real markets as well, and that was the impetus for this. I also was interested, Clive was working on bilinear models, and he had a test for a bilinear model, which I adapted for the ARCH model, and there was a whole time series literature that I could use to work these details out. Um, well, at over the next few years at UCSD, David Lillian and Russ Robbins and I in, worked on the risk-return trade-off and invented a, a variation on the ARCH model, the ARCH and mean model. There were papers that suddenly appeared in finance that developed this. Uh, my students in a whole range of students uh, began a research program in financial econometrics. UCSD sponsored an econometrics research group that, for Clive, Hal White, and I, which provided wonderful research opportunities for us to develop the ideas that we were doing, both in ARCH and in our other uh, areas we were uh, working. Um, I spoke at, I mean, I ended up being uh, speaking at various financial institutions, consulting projects, learning about finance. I organized some conferences here on volatilities. Uh, and the whole thing just kind of developed over, over a sort of a decade into this big research enterprise. Um, and now, after... 25 years at UCSD, I moved to NYU to be in a finance department because my interest had switched so much to finance. This was before the Rady School was here. Um, and now I'm ending up meeting with practitioners and regulators on lots of different things, and this has actually turned out to be a fascinating experience. Um, I, I run the Volatility Institute at NYU, and I am a co-founding president of the Society for Financial Econometrics, which is a new, very exciting uh, organization, which is now holding its fourth annual meeting in Chicago in uh, a couple of months. But what about these good ideas? I always like simple ideas. In fact, Einstein has a great quote, as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, well, that's a nice idea. I sort of remember in ninth grade when I tried to explain to my science teacher that, that the formula for how fast something would fall or how far it would fall that had a square in it, uh, time squared times the force of gravity. I mean, and that this was too complicated. It couldn't have been right. Nature wouldn't have done something like that. So, I mean, I think we do make mistakes thinking about things are really simpler than they are, but the idea of simplicity is very important, I think. Um, good ideas come from looking at one problem from the point of view of another. A good idea has legs when you apply it to one area and then extend it to someplace else it may have important implications that you hadn't thought of. A good idea today may seem trivial tomorrow. I think that's surprisingly often true, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Good ideas pop into mind at conferences or odd times or when having a conversation 
or even in class. Good ideas come from a relaxed mind, and they often come from attempts to disprove something else. That's the, uh, the origin of Clive's invention of cointegration, as he tells it. Universities are incubators of good ideas. Students bring us good ideas, often laden with irrelevancies, but we help them figure out how to make these good ideas work, how to develop them. They write papers, they get jobs, they become active faculty members, and good ideas are the currency of the PhD student. But it's not just the PhD student, it's the faculty. With a good idea, we write research papers and give lectures. We attract students. We attract collaborators. We organize conferences and international meetings focus on these good ideas. And we develop and develop more and more aspects of these ideas. Universities, when they are sources of good ideas, they are successful in raising funds from granting agencies. They're successful in drawing in the community such as tonight, and growing the enterprise. They are successful in attracting the best students and in attracting the best faculty. And then, from all these faculty and students, we get more new ideas. So UCSD, I believe, is a great example of this incubation and performance of the role of generating ideas through excellence of its faculty and excellence of its students. It certainly was critical for me, my experience at UCSD and their support of my research and development. So I want to thank all of you and thank UCSD. So here, it's true, we could clap at that. Thank you, UCSD. I'm, I'm just about done, but the, there's a couple quotes here that I think are kind of fun. The universe is full of magical things, waiting patiently for our wits to grow sharper. To see what is in front of one's nose requires a constant struggle. And to select well among old things is almost equal to inventing new ones. So, thank you all for coming tonight. We count on you to help us be good incubators. And I hope you go home with some good ideas. And sometime, join me in my favorite spot for coffee, the Arch Cafe. Thank you. Uh, Our last speaker is Roger Chen, winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2008 for the discovery and development of the green fluorescent protein, GFP. Roger began his career in science when he was six or seven years old. His father bought him a chemistry set, which led to his discovery of science books in the elementary school library. This, in turn, resulted in his sketching experiments in a notebook when he was eight years old. Although he was unable to get the notebook published, The original now resides in the Nobel Museum. Roger's career in science progressed nicely through high school. In his senior year, he won the first of his many honors by winning the nationwide Westinghouse Science Talent Search. Although he remains mystified how he won, because he now considers his project to have been scientifically unsound. 
Of course, it has been onward and upward ever since. When it came time to go to college, Roger went to Harvard. Interestingly, he chose Harvard over Caltech, in part because Harvard had a better music department. And he did take music theory and chamber music performance classes there. He also took economics classes. But unlike Rob, he resisted the temptation to pursue an economics career. Roger decided to leave Cambridge, Massachusetts for Cambridge University in England for graduate study, where he also did his postdoctoral work. Because of Prime Minister Thatcher's austerity program, there were few faculty positions available in England when Roger completed his postdoc. So he decided to return to the US and found a position at UC Berkeley. Now, public universities in the US at that time were also dealing with financial challenges. So Berkeley was unable to provide the research facilities that Roger needed. As a result, UCSD was able to entice him in 1989 to join the chemistry and biochemistry department, the Department of Pharmacology, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, all at UCSD. In Roger's words, UCSD was much younger, roomier, faster growing, and less tradition bound than Berkeley. We are indeed indeed very fortunate that we could attract Roger to UCSD. In the words of an anonymous reviewer, his contributions have brought considerable acclaim to our faculty and institution. Moreover, he has been an outstanding departmental citizen and a teacher who has shown an abiding commitment to academic endeavors that are not necessarily connected to his research. Please join me in welcoming Roger Chen. I realize it's very late, and I'll try to go through this quickly, and hopefully I'm lucky that my research it tends to be fairly visual, so uh, I can just show you some movies. Um, so the first is to uh, thank the creature that really perhaps should have gotten a Nobel Prize, which is Equoria Victoria, this jellyfish uh, here shown swimming uh, in an aquarium. I have to confess that though it's famous and its scientific role is because it glows when disturbed, every so often here you see the flash that is not the flash of the jellyfish, that is children pushing the button that changes the lighting at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. (laughs) And two of these guys are having a race to the bottom of the tank. You see the other ones coming up fast in the inside lane. Uh, as I said, the jellyfish um, glows when it's disturbed, and that attracted the interest of this man, uh, Osamu Shimamura, uh, and he was interested in the mechanism of glowing, and that's what he mainly worked on. But in his paper that he first described the glowing protein, Ikorin, he also mentioned that there was this contaminant in the jellyfish that actually was somewhat hard to separate, and that this protein uh, took the, uh, could absorb uh, ultraviolet or blue light and turn it into green. And Corin actually glows blue originally, so they worked as a, could work as a pair. And uh, I don't have a picture of Osamu from 1962. I have a picture of him from 2008 at the rehearsal, where here he is holding a tube of uh, GFP. He has perhaps the last tube in the world that was actually made out of real jellyfish. And I believe there's about 20,000 jellyfish died to make this tube. And here, this is, uh, here is the uh, uh, hand UV lamp that he uses to show uh, how the the protein can glow. 
The next major step was that this man in the middle here, Douglas Prasher in 1992, uh, cloned the gene for GFP, uh, which Shimamura declined to do. Uh, Prasher was more of a molecular biologist and uh, decided that he would find the DNA that encoded this protein. Uh, and uh, there's a long story of, uh, of tremendous personal irony here that uh, Doug Prasher uh, uh, did not make tenure at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, his grants were not renewed, uh, and uh, he uh, dropped out of science very shortly thereafter. But he at least did publish the gene uh, and uh, the, the cloning. And the two people basically in the world read the paper with any care, and one of them was me and the other was Marty Chalfie. Uh, so the, we are the ones who then took up the story. But you might ask why Prasher did not, and uh, therein is a long story that perhaps has the fact to do with that he did drop out of science and that unfortunately the Nobel is never given to four people. So Marty was the first one uh, to uh, uh, show that Prasher's gene could be put into other organisms and would make a glowing protein, uh, and that was done in 1994. Uh, actually, a month later, Fred Suji right here at SIO uh, did the same thing, but he was a month later. Uh, and our contribution was eventually to do many things, but partly to change the color of GFP into this entire panel and to fix up the deficiencies of the original jellyfish protein, which the jellyfish made for its own purposes and not to help biologists, and it needed a lot of fixing up to do. But at that still, one could regard all what we did as relatively derivative, but you know, um, for some reason they decided to include me. Uh, and uh, we came up with some fun names for all of these, uh, which these names, these are all turns out from coral rather than from jellyfish and uh, some very clever Russians discovered that the corals also have homologs of the jellyfish. The jellyfish never could get us beyond this yellow-green, uh, but the uh, corals got us to uh, the, the rest of the spectrum. And so this is where things stood in 2004. And if I can explain very in one slide, you know, who cares? So what? So you've got these colors. Well, they are glowing. If you may have seen this picture here, they've all been illuminated with other wavelengths of light. They are not toxic. And they're, the key is that they are pigments that we can teach nearly any cell or organism how to make. The only exceptions are those that you can't put genes into or that can't tolerate oxygen from the air. Uh, the, these colors then form labels that we can tag any protein, just about any protein you want or any cell within an organism or even an entire organism if you can genetically modify it. And that way we can watch the living protein cell organism do its thing. It's, we can watch its life history. We can detect when genes are turned on and off. And in particular favorite of mine is that we can engineer these proteins to make them artificially sensitive to nearly any biochemical, other biochemical signal inside cells, such as the acidity, the pH, that is, the calcium level, the kinase activity. This is enzymes that put phosphate groups on, enzymes that tear proteins apart. Just any time an enzyme or or a protein snuggles up into another one, we can also see that by engineering these fluorescent proteins. And I'll give you just two examples that are, happen to be nice visual pictures. I don't say that they're the most profound scientifically, but for this audience, I thought vision uh, uh, fun pictures are, are, are good. So these are, this is a zebrafish embryo that has been uh, transfected. We have put the DNA in other, in other words, t 
to teach this embryo how to make a special molecule that will change color when it sees calcium ions. And we're going to watch this embryo as it begins to divide in its first steps to becoming a fish from just a single cell. And if I can run the movie here. The first thing that happened is that you notice it, it when it began to divide, a band of red spread across, and that band is, is maintained at the belt where it's tightening. And in fact, this is the signal to tighten the belt. And as if I were to do this and tighten and tighten and tighten until I eventually was pinched into two. Um, and calcium was the trigger for that, and this keeps going. And the next cell division, which is going to be here, once again, the red color, which is the high calcium, presages the formation of that cleavage furrow. And then the next one is coming, and that's split here and here. And we go into the 8-cell stage, and next is the 16-cell stage coming up, and then there's some more. And at this stage, it begins to just get visually muddy because there are so many divisions piled up on top of each other, you can't resolve them anymore. But the procedure continues. And this is really the beginning of life for all of us, all vertebrates. Uh, just happens the zebrafish are transparent and they make nice pictures. And here's another example, again, from a former postdoc at Sushi Milwaukee, where he made a different set of molecules that now tell you whether a cell is getting ready to divide or has just divided or is finished. And that's using our biochemical knowledge of the steps in triggering division versus quiescence, then going to division. In other words, the cell's business cycle, you might say, except that we see it in color. And he chose this as pretty colors. He had some choice, and so I think he made it nice and memorable. Green means go. Red means stop in quiescence. Uh, and, you know, it could have been the other way around, but traffic lights work this way, so it's easier to remember. And here are two cells, and one of them is red, which means it's taking a break. And this one's about to divide. And now I'm going to show you one week's worth of data compressed into a few seconds as we watch. And each one of these cells cycles between green and red and green and red and green and red as you watch them. It is green just before it divides, and then it goes into a red phase, and then back into green and so on just as before it divides with intermediate colors of orange and yellow as it goes back and forth, up and down. And you see the date has gone from Friday to Thursday, and you have this whole mix of cells at different stages. Now, you may ask, why did we need to see this? After all, if you have a complete movie, in retrospect, you can trace out when each cell divided, because you could play the movie back and check. But this tells you a prediction. Now, it's almost like what we were just hearing about. Uh, this will predict by the color whether it's going to divide very soon or not. And I, I think these business cycles are great, but I wish I knew what was going to happen next month. <laughs> That's what we would all wish, and it's a lot easier to plot them in retrospect. Let me point out that fluorescent proteins are also good educational tools, even down to the high school and elementary school classroom, and we uh, have helped launch an outreach program here from UCSD called BioBridge that tries to take experiments like this out into the schools, because these are pretty you know, easy experiments, and they have a nice visual feedback. The students can see, in this case, bacterial colonies glowing cherry lipstick red, and by making a little change, they can turn the red back into green or make it colorless or so on. So they can see the principles of mutation, genetic engineering, biochemistry with their own hands, and the fact that it made a recent Nobel Prize makes them happier because they feel they're near the cutting edge and not just studying stuff that was discovered 100 years ago by uh, Mendel or someone like that. 
So this is spreading through San Diego County. I just want to mention that uh, I want to be the first one to tell you the limitations. Fluorescent proteins have been good, but they also have some bad and some ugly features, not really nasty in the sense of society, but uh, though they revolutionized basic biomedical sciences in the way I just described, there is one organism that is the most difficult to put DNA into, and that is the human being. It's not because it's scientifically difficult, but it is ethically not something we're going to allow. If you are sick and going to the hospital and I want to treat you, are you going to volunteer to have DNA put into you, uh, which would be a form of gene therapy? Furthermore, humans are too thick and opaque for fluorescence of the sort I showed you, which is why we were, the, our colleagues worked on zebrafish, which are transparent. Uh, so between the genetic engineering and the thickness and opacity of most of us, uh, we have to, for solving disease problems uh, for actual sick people. Now, this is distinct from under, basic research to understand disease, but to actually try to treat people, we still need other non-genetic methods, and this is more of what I've gone back to in my career, having had my fling with the genetically encoded ones. And I'll just show you an example of what we're trying to do. Here is a mouse that actually has a tumor in there. I'm sorry, it's a bit dark, but most of you would not be able to see where the tumor begins and ends. Uh, it's really, of course, it's so dark you can't see anything at all, but trust me, it's not easy to see. There, okay, sorry, there, it's a little bit brighter, and even then, you wouldn't have an easy time seeing where the tumor begins and ends. But when we switch into fluorescence mode, and this is a special types of dyes attached to peptides that we are injecting into the mouse. This is not genetic. This is not G anymore, but we're trying to do the equivalent with things that can be done on human beings. Now you can see the boundaries of the tumor, sort of. Uh, they're not crisp because it sort of fades away at the edges, but the bright fluorescence indicates where the enzymes are active in this uh, cancer. And then when we go on a little further, now we can superimpose these two views. In the fluorescence, we false color green and superimpose it on the rest of the mouse. And then it looks as if it had GFP in it, but it really isn't. It's something we injected. And this helps the surgeon go along and cut out the tumor. There's the regular white light view that surgeons have always had. And now in the false color view with the green, it becomes much easier to cut out the tumor relatively accurately because you just want to get rid of all the green stuff. So if this is the white light view. Hard to know where the boundaries are here. It's much better. We're revealing the nerve here, but unfortunately, uh, soon we're going to see two branches of this nerve. But in regular white light, you don't know that there's an extra hidden branch of the nerve that's here. It's invisible in white light. There's the white light view, but only when we turn on the fluorescence can we see that there's this extra branch using a separate molecule that lights up the nerves. And so we use the second molecule to tell us where not to cut, and the first molecule that finds the tumor to tell us what to get rid of. And you need both of that those pieces of information. So uh, let me switch now to some pontificating. Uh, my version uh, is what are some lessons for young scientists? Try to put your neuroses to constructive use. Now, what I mean by neuroses, I didn't have time to go into, is, but one of them, for example, is that though I like to play the piano, I am really not very 
dexterous in the lab, especially with micromanipulators. And my failure at that was a cause for a lot of this chemistry, to find a way of putting dyes or colors into animals without poking the cells and trying to keep them alive while I injected stuff out of this uh, super microscopic tip. Uh, I'm not very good at that. I hate it. So uh, I you know, put this neurosis to constructive use. Also, the, why am I a chemist? Well, it's partly because my father was a mechanical engineer uh, and my older brothers were electrical engineers and they sort of took over all the sort of chemistry, uh, the, the uh, engineering and electrical space and so on. And I was a sort of scientifically inclined. The one thing that they all hated, all of my brothers and my father, was chemistry. So I, I, as the youngest child, I was forced to find the ecological niche. There's a whole book on this subject, by the way, the effect of birth order. Uh, try to find projects that give you some sensual pleasure, and you may have noticed that I do love pretty colors. Uh, accept that your batting average will be low, hopefully not zero, and that when you do succeed, uh, it's often for the wrong reasons. You have to learn to make lemonade from lemons, and sometimes persistence pays off, and if I had time, I could go through example after example where nature gave, fed us some un disappointing result, but fortunately, we were able to use that to our advantages. Um, prizes are ultimately a matter luck, so avoid being motivated or impressed by them. You have to go for things that will you know, please your own gut because the chance that you will get a prize is so low, uh, that's not an acceptable uh, reward to risk ratio, shall we say. And of course, you've got to find the right collaborators and exploit them in a kind way for mutual benefit. So uh, let me go back through a little history, some of which actually has to do with UCSD. People are always asking Nobel laureates, was it a complete surprise when you got the call from Stockholm? And I have to admit, it was not. It was an extremely annoying uh, thing because several days earlier, the, the practice now of this news agency called Thomson Reuters is to make their picks of who they think deserves the Nobel Prize, at least in the uh, um, physics, chemistry, and medicine subjects. I'm not sure if they do economics, but they probably probably do. And they had predicted these three people, Charlie Lieber, Christoph Matyszewski, and me. Now, we work in completely different areas, so we can never share it, but they were hedging their bets and tried to pick three different areas. And based on this was enough for reporters like the Union Tribune also already wanting interviews. What does it feel like to be tipped as a Nobel laureate? And I said, the answer is really, go away. I don't want you know, to have any um, you know, chickens counted before they hatch. That's the surest way to make sure it won't happen, right, to have people count on it. But UCSD Public Relations insisted they wanted to get ready. They ordered a cake <laughs> with green, green icing, you know, in honor of GFP. And, you know, I thought this was a really dumb idea because especially, you know, and I had some, you know, day-by-day -day prediction. I could check their, the likelihood of their predictions. Uh, on Medicine is always announced on Monday, and not one of their three candidates, Thomson Reuters, was right. And then physics on Tuesday, and again, they struck out completely. Uh, so, you know, the likelihood that they're going to be right on Wednesday is pretty dismal. Furthermore, I must admit that I had been forced to go through an audition in spring of 2006 where I was holed up in front of the Swedish Royal of Academy of Sciences. Well, I have to admit, I, you know, I wasn't resisting that hard. Very few people turned down an invitation to speak in front of the Royal Academy of Sciences. And after that talk, which was you know, a summary of what we'd done, including that picture of all the colored tubes and being taken out to dinner, nobody would talk to me. 
And they all sort of sat there like bumps on a log. And I tried to make polite conversation about, you know, what areas of chemistry were they interested, blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, it was pretty sad failure. So I was sure I'd flunked it. Um, so it was pretty surprising then when I got a phone call at 2.25 in the morning on October 8th, a warning that there would be a press conference in 20 minutes held in Stockholm that I would be participating by phone, and I had to participate because Osamu and Marty were not answering their telephones. Uh, and they had the advantage that it was 5.25 in the morning there and not 2.25, and I think they could have done their, their, their part, but they, they laid it all on me by you know, ref- sleeping through their alarm clocks or phones. So groggily, uh, I, um, I had to, you know, rouse myself from a, admittedly, I had taken a sleeping pill precisely not to be bothered by all of this. And I had to, uh, you know, come up with something to say to the world's press. Um, it's a, a real challenge to keep the lab running. It, I never really managed to acknowledge the congratulations properly. Uh, and I really don't know how Paul Krugman, who was the economics winner for that year, how the hell does he manage to meet two or three deadlines a week for the New York Times? He still manages to do it. Of course, there's some strange moments, like the traditionally American Nobel laureates get invited to the White House. We were in, Wendy and I were in some doubt whether we should even go and, and you know, go to meet this man. But he had, you know, after Obama had just shaken his hand after winning the election, so who were we to, to, to consider ourselves <laughs> higher and mightier? And the man does have, I have to say, uh, Mr. Bush did have a very good sense of humor. At one stage, he put his arm around Paul Krugman, who you know has attacked Bush vitriol in the newspaper, and Bush said, well, and as the photographers were clicking away, he said, "Uh, Professor Krugman, I think your grandchildren will enjoy this picture, (laughs) or something like that. And and so here are my pictures. Uh, That's the king shaking my hand, Uh, and I have just checked with Rob Engel, and we agreed that neither of us heard what the king has to say. And I, um, I've heard that from other laureates as well, that he mumbles something, and we are guessing, we are told that probably what he's saying is, don't drop it, it's heavy, it looks embarrassing if you drop it in front of a few thousand people. There's the three of us, and I'm looking particularly morose because I hate dressing up in this penguin suit. Here are the beautiful royals, uh, and the king, the queen, uh, the, the, the beautiful princesses and the prince and the uh, laureates, the chemistry laureates and the spouse. Of course, there's corresponding pictures for the other subjects. Uh, then there's this fancy banquet when the Swedes sure know how to throw a party. And I had the fortune to sit next to uh, Princess Madeline, who's a rather charming lady. On her other side was Paul Krugman. Uh, she is shown in this picture talking to me, which was actually a relatively rare event during this dinner, because if you were a beautiful princess who is not a scientist, who would you rather talk to? One of the world's most famous experts on economic crises, 2008, who can explain to you what's going to happen to the Swedish auto industry, uh, and who's really good at explaining things to lay people because he write, does it every t- twice a week for the New York Times or would you rather talk to somebody about jellyfish <laughs> but here we actually are talking to each other and what we found in common is that she of course is the youngest of three and I am the youngest of three and when she found out that Wendy is the youngest of three she asked do you think that youngest children in their families are meant for each other because her boyfriend was the youngest of three 
and I apply yes, yes. Unfortunately, that boyfriend has subsequently proven unfaithful and has, uh, it's broken up, so that's sad. Wendy could not complain I had a beautiful young lady to talk to because she had a pretty good-looking guy. Uh, this is Prince Carl Philip, and uh, she had could monopolize him because on his other side was the Japanese, w- the wife of one of the Japanese physicists, and she didn't speak either English or Swedish or anything that he could uh, communicate with. So Wendy had him all to herself for the entire evening, and the evening does go on a bit because one thing, if I dare say, I, inside secret, you are not allowed to get up from the table as long as the royalty is seated. So you are well advised, and they do advise you make sure you visit the rest room beforehand because it's going to be quite a few hours. So here is the inside of the dining room uh, during this fantastic banquet. This, I guess, is the top table, I think, and halfway down there is the king, and half somewhere up, uh, around there are, are, are us. And these are the waiters bringing in the dessert, which traditionally has these fireworks associated with it. So each one of these is a sort of a, a sparkler that they carry, and with, they carry the whole thing down the length of the hallway while this thing is blazing away. Some other side pictures, you do get to sign a big book with other people's names in it, and they do allow you to ask who do you, whose previous signature or picture do you want to look at, and uh, you might not be surprised that we asked to see Albert Einstein's picture there. They make us give lectures at schools, and here was a young man who was so excited about meeting he, me that he insisted that I sign my name on his torso uh, in ink. <laughs> Uh, which is not easy to do. It, human flesh is not a very easy thing to write on, actually. This is the actual weather, and that shows you Wendy on the day after the Nobel. Uh, during the daytime, this is Stockholm City Hall where the um, ceremonies are held. Uh, this is the testament of Nobel himself, um, and it's a really pretty chicken-scratchy document. Um, he really had lousy handwriting and a really bad organization. You see it's all scribbled in the margins and all of the things that have grown up in tradition are the interpretation of just these two pages in his will. And finally here is a picture of the uh, paper mache giant green frog with which the Stockholm University students roast the laureates, those who are willing to at least hang around to be roasted and we stayed, and uh, uh, it was, we are inducted into the order of the ever-smiling, jumping green frog, which is what we're wearing around our necks, and it takes four people to hold the four legs of a frog, and in this case, I happened, somebody took a picture of me at the front, uh, Tsutomu Shimomura, son of Osamu, represented his dad, who wasn't feeling well enough. There's Marty Chalfi uh, at the back, and I'm sorry, it's partially obscured there is Douglas Prasher, and I'm really glad to say that it takes four people to hold up a frog, and that Douglas, as our guest, uh, Marty's and my guest, was able to contribute there, at least. And finally, this is our interpretation of a sunset with a green flash. As you might see it, had we been a little closer to the edge of the cliff, uh, we actually can't see the sunset from our lab, but it's not far off. And uh, this is all drawn, of course, with fluorescent bacteria. So this is the actual living pigments uh, used as our paint. And these are the people in the lab who did the various things that I've mentioned. Uh, None of it by me, by the way. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.